For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to 1 Timothy 6. One of the idols that most tempts us as Christians is no doubt the idol of money, and the Apostle addresses that in this chapter. So we read it in connection with the first commandment. 1 Timothy 6, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. We consider together the teaching of the Catechism this morning, the second part of Lord's Day 34. 
Lord's Day 34, question 94. What doth God enjoin in the first commandment? That I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints or any other creatures, and learn rightly to know the only true God. Trust in him alone. With humility and patience submit to him. Expect all good things from him only. Love, fear, and glorify him with my whole heart, so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested himself in his word to contrive, that means to invent, or have any other object in which men place their trust. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first commandment that comes down to us from the mouth of God is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now one of the first questions we could ask about that commandment is, what does God mean when he says, no other gods before me? And the answer to that question is not that God is saying to us, that we may not serve other gods until we have first served him. God is not saying that we have to serve him first, and only when we have served him first, then we may serve other gods. He's not saying before in the sense of first worship me, and then afterward you can worship other gods. But what he means to say is that we must not have any other gods in his presence. That's what he means when he says, no other gods before me. You must not have other gods that you worship right here in front of me, right here in front of my face, right here under my ever-watchful eyes. And he says that to us because this is our nature. Ever since the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, when they wanted to become gods, and they thought by eating the fruit they could become gods, our inclination has been to want to be gods and to have other gods right here in front of the eyes of the ever-watchful true God. But now, in Christ Jesus, who died on the cross and who took upon himself our sins of worshiping idols, who has washed us in his blood, who has justified us, and who is sanctifying us, he has renewed in us a desire to serve the Lord alone as our God, with all of our heart, all of our soul, 
all of our mind and all of our strength. Isn't that your desire as a Christian? If I ask you this morning, do you desire to have God alone as your God, as your only God, the only God whom you serve in your life with all of your being, then won't your answer be, yes, yes, that's what I want, that's what I desire. Well then, we preach the first commandment this morning from the point of view of this is the guide for our life of thankfulness before God. As Christians, we have a desire to grow in obedience, to grow in holiness and godliness, to draw nearer to the God who has saved us, to obey him, as the Catechism says, and not to commit even the least thing contrary to his will. That's our desire, to make God our first priority in our lives. So let's consider the first commandment. And we're going to notice three aspects of the commandment this morning. If you listened carefully in the reading of the Catechism, you saw a number of things mentioned there. Loving God, fearing God, glorifying God, trusting God, and so forth. We're going to focus on these three aspects of the first commandment. First, that we love God alone as God. Secondly, that we trust in God alone as God. And thirdly, that we glorify God alone as God. In the first commandment, when God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, what he means by that is that we love him alone as our God, that we don't have any other gods in our lives that we love as our gods, that we don't have anything else in our life that captivates our hearts, that we are so enamored and enraptured in that thing or that person that it is our God. We are in love with it as our God. It has our heart, it has our soul, it has our mind, and it has our energy and strength and efforts, our absolute devotion and affection. Who is your God, beloved? What is it, or who is it in your life that you love to the greatest degree, in the greatest amount, with the greatest amount of affection, with the greatest amount of devotion, with absolute dedication? Whatever or whoever that is, that's your God. If you can identify who it is in your life that you love above everyone else and above everything else, that is your God. And if there is anything or anyone that you love above the one true God, then that is an idol. Who is it that you love? Everyone has a God, you know. Even the fool who says in his heart that there is no God, he also has a God because he also has someone or something that he loves as the greatest thing in his life. Our God is just the thing or the person that we consider to be the greatest good. We consider this person or this thing to have the ability to make us happy more than anyone or anything else. That's our God. So we love our God. We long for our God. We seek after our God. We think about our God on a constant basis. 
Our God is constantly in our thoughts, constantly in our minds, and our affection is warm towards it. We set up our God on a pedestal in our hearts, and we gaze adoringly at it, thinking about spending time with it, being with it, enjoying it, whatever it might be. And that becomes evident in our lives, in the choices we make, in the the actions that we take, in how much attention we give to it. Where is your focus in life? Where is your attention? Where do you place it? That's your God. That's the idea of the word God, in part, in the scriptures. This is the thing, this is the person, this is the object to which we're devoted the one that we love more than anything else. It is the center of our life. Our life revolves around our God, whatever or whoever that is. Our God is our passion. Our God is our delight. Our God is our treasure. So who is your God or what? In the first commandment, God says, the one true God says to us, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not be going around worshiping and loving other gods which are no gods instead of me, beside me. So that brings us to the idea of idolatry. And the Catechism defines idolatry as instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested himself in his word to invent and to have any other object in which we place our trust. And now we can, instead of the word trust, we can put there the word love. It is any other object in which we place our love. That's idolatry. Instead of God, we place our love in this idol. Now, we know that throughout the Bible times, there were many different idols that men invented. They invented Baal and Ashtaroth and Molech and Chemosh and so many other idol gods. And today, too, there are other religions in which men contrive idols and they love their gods and goddesses. But we're Christians, and as members of the Christian faith, we repudiate all those idols and we acknowledge only one true God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, because of our sinful natures, we still manufacture idols in our hearts. And usually those kinds of idolatry are what sometimes are called respectable sins, socially acceptable sins, things that nobody can necessarily point out and say, you're worshiping the idol of this or that thing, things that really only we can know in our own hearts, whether we're making it an idol or not. And one of those things is money. The Apostle Paul speaks of that in 1 Timothy 6. He talks about false teachers who think that gain is godliness, that if you get more riches and more prosperity, that's a sign that you are godly. God is blessing you. He's making you prosperous because of your godliness. But Paul says, no, no, no. Godliness with contentment is great gain spiritually. Having food and clothing, let's be content with that because he says those who want to be rich 
those who will be rich, that means those who have a desire, an ambition, an aspiration to become rich in their lives, they fall into temptation and a snare. They fall into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown them in destruction. Why? Because the love of money is the root of all evil, which many are coveting after. They are longing for money and more money. And when they have that desire, they go astray from the faith. And they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. So money is not an evil in itself. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to seek money by working at our jobs and following legitimate means of gaining income. But what the apostle speaks of is the love of money. We're talking in this first point of the sermon about what do we love. God says, Thou shalt love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the first and the great commandment. You shall not have any other gods before me. So when we have the love of money, and we become ensnared in that, so that we desire to be rich, we're seeking riches, we're thinking about riches, we're constantly aiming at gaining more and more money, rather than working diligently with our hands and being content with what God gives us, then we've made money our God. Or we've made money at least one of our gods. And it's possible that we have many gods in our hearts that we're serving instead of the one true God, and we're doing that right in front of his face. The reason money can become a god is because we understand that money has the power to give us the things that we want in life. Money has the power to make us happy, we think. Because with money, we can purchase all the things that we want and have all the experiences and pleasures that we want in this life. So if we only have more of it, if we would only become rich, then we think we will be happy. And we will have all the pleasures of this life. Sometimes it's just the satisfaction of gaining that money which is why someone loves it, but it is an idol one way or another. And I can't tell you and you can't tell me if we're serving the God of money. Only you know that in your heart. There are many other respectable sins, sins that are not respectable to God, but sins that are often tolerated in society and sometimes even tolerated in the church There's the God of pornography, for example, and all kinds of sexually perverse activities on the internet, television, or on our tablets and other devices. Now, we know that that's a breaking of the seventh commandment of adultery, but it's also a breaking of the first commandment of idolatry when we fixate on the images and the videos of pornography so that We place our affections on that, and we find joy and pleasure and happiness in that instead of in God. And we become enslaved and addicted to it so that that thing becomes a God to us. There are many other idols. There's the idol of alcohol. 
There's the idol of all kinds of other drugs, some of which are legitimate, some of which are not, some of which are legal, some of which are not. There's the drugs of nicotine and caffeine, and those are legal drugs. But there are other drugs that are illegal. There's things like food and all the different kinds of food. There's things like sugar and sweets, things which are perfectly legitimate in themselves. And nobody would condemn you for enjoying them. And nobody may judge others for enjoying things that are in and of themselves not sinful. But we know if we're turning those things into an idol. Maybe nobody else can know that except ourselves. But we know if we have so fixated on that thing, which may or may not be legitimate, that we love it so much that we're constantly going back to it in our thoughts. We're constantly thinking about it, constantly wanting it. And we're finding in that thing and seeking in that thing our joy, our happiness, our pleasure, instead of going to God then that becomes an idol. There are the idols of popularity and fame, the praise of men. That's a terrible idol, that we fall in love with being affirmed, being praised, being loved by other people. You can even make love itself an idol. But perhaps the greatest and the worst and the most sinister of all idols is the idol of ourselves. That we turn our love and affection so absolutely inward to ourselves that we're actually loving ourselves as gods. And modern psychologists will call that narcissism, perhaps. And perhaps we will say, well, that's a narcissist, or there's a narcissist. But then we forget that we all are narcissists by nature, spiritually. That simply means that we're all self-centered, self-loving, and self-obsessed. And that is the sin of idolatry. And we could mention so many other things. But that's enough to show us that in the first commandment, God teaches us, first of all, our sinfulness. Because none of us can escape. None of us can say, well, I don't have any idols. It shouldn't take very much searching for us to discover what is it in my past and even now in the present that I love more than God or that I love as my God. That's an idol. And when God convicts and pricks and pierces our hearts with that, then he also calls us to flee to Christ, to the cross of his son Jesus, and to throw ourselves down before the suffering, bleeding Son of God on the cross, realizing that he is on that cross because of my sins of idolatry. And there on that cross, he's shedding his blood in love for me because he loved me so much that he was willing to give up all that he was and all that he had to lay down his life in manifestation of the love of God for me. And when we gaze up at that cross and understand that God first loved me from before the foundation of the world, and he loves me with an unconditional, self-sacrificial, everlasting love, and he will never change his love towards me, 
But through the cross of Christ, he has forgiven all my sins and washed them away. And now he has implanted in my heart through the Spirit the power of renewal, the power of change. So that the cross has the power to break our addictions, to break our enslavements, to break our ungodly affections, to take our attention away from those gods, even if it takes many days, months, and years, to bring us to the point where we grow in love and we become fixated on him. And we discover more and more, there isn't anything in this world that can satisfy me. There isn't any drug. There isn't any meal. There isn't any amount of money. There's nothing in this world that can give me what God can give me. Only God. And so we fall in love with him over and over again, and our love grows deeper. The love of God can only arise out of faith. can only arise out of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to love God. The first commandment also contains implicitly the call to believe. Believe in Jehovah of hosts, that he is the one true God, and that there is no other. Believe him when he says that. Believe him when he says in the scriptures, Baal and Ashtaroth, all of these gods of prosperity and fertility and sexual pleasure and all these other gods, they're no gods. They don't exist. I am God and I alone. Love me. Love me with all your heart. I'm the overflowing fountain of all good. I'm the source of all pleasure and treasure and eternal satisfaction. Come to me, turn to me, look to me. Place your affections upon me and you will be satisfied. When we get to heaven, the struggle will be over. The struggle with all these false substitutes, all these deceptive idols that try to ensnare us and grab us and take hold of us. And God will be our chief joy for all eternity. He will become the center of our life, and there will be no turning back. But already now, He calls us to grow in the Christian life. He calls us to flee from idols. The last verse in the epistle of 1 John. It's a little bit startling when you read it. After you read this beautiful book about God's love and our calling to love, the very last verse of the epistle is, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's our Christian calling. And the Apostle Paul says it too in, Flee idolatry. Now in the second place, we notice that the first commandment also requires us to trust in God alone. The catechism gets at that when it says, we are to avoid sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints or other creatures. We are to learn to know God rightly, to trust in him alone, to submit to him with humility and patience, to expect all good things from him only. In the scriptures, Proverbs 3, verse 5, we read, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, 
and lean not unto thine own understanding. That's the first commandment. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. That's what God wants us to do. So who do you trust? Or what do you trust? And now, who do you trust more than anyone else? More than anything else. Who would you trust with your life to protect you, to save you, to rescue you, to provide you with all the things that you need in this life? Who do you trust to give you the knowledge of the truth? As we live in this world of so much confusion, so much division, we hear and we learn about the deconstruction of the faith of young people. There's this term of deconversion and deconstruction that's becoming popular today as young people grow up in the church, but then through some kind of abuse or confusion or chaos in their life, they come to the point where they don't even know what's true anymore. So where do you turn? Who can you trust to tell you the truth? To have the knowledge of the truth. We need that as human beings. Who do you trust? Who do you lean on for support in your life? Who do you turn to for the future? And who do you place your hope in to expect all good things from him alone? That's your God. Whoever or whatever that is, that's your God. We trust in our God. We pray to our God. We talk to our God for our daily food and drink, for our clothing and shelter, for recovery when we are sick, and ultimately for the salvation of our bodies and souls. That's our God. We look to our God for peace and comfort when we're anxious. We put our trust in it. We turn to it. We look to it. Or him. To calm our hearts, to quiet our souls, to give us comfort in the midst of difficulties of life. That's our God. And in the first commandment, the Lord of hosts says to us, My people, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not trust in any other powers besides me. But that's exactly what we do by nature. And so idolatry can also be defined, as the Catechism does, as that I can concoct or invent or have some other object instead of or besides the one true God in which I place my trust. I place my trust in this object. And of course, that is what heathen religion is all about. They invent idol gods like we've mentioned, Baal and Ashtaroth or the gods of Greece, Zeus and Poseidon. Poseidon, the god of the sea. So if you're a sailor going out into the sea, you'll put your trust in Poseidon to keep you safe. Or if you are a farmer in, in Canaan, Canaan, you place your trust in Baal to give you the rain. They place their trust in these idols to give them what they need. Many pagan religions also place trust in, as the Catechism points that out, soothsaying and invocation of saints and other creatures and superstition, witchcraft. You find that especially in pagan lands, but it's also can be found here in our supposedly civilized country. 
You find that. Witchcraft, the dark arts, the invocation of the dead, our dead ancestors, or the dead saints who are in heaven, or the Virgin Mary. People try to pray to them, put their trust in them. Soothsaying and necromancy are practices in which people want or feel that they need to know the future in order to live in the present. So they go to a witch or a medium of some kind and they hope that they can give them some insights about the future. That's putting our trust in another god. That's idolatry. And even though we might never do any of those things, there are respectable sins that we are guilty of, aren't there? That we place our trust in certain creatures in the hope and the expectation that they will be able to help us through our troubles in life and provide us with what we need in life. So again, we go back to 1 Timothy 6, and the apostle speaks of money. Sometimes there is the worshiping of money because we think that money can give us what we need. And that's putting our trust in money. It's interesting, in the United States, the dollar bills... The design on the dollar bill that was made, I imagine, a long time ago, actually says on there, in God we trust. I suppose whoever made the money long ago wanted to remind everybody that we don't put our trust in this. We put our trust in God. And don't forget that this money was given to you by God. And that all of the money in the world belongs to God. He can give it and he can take it away at any moment. And he can do that because he controls the economies of the world. He controls your job, your income, your employees, your employer, your customers. He controls all of those things. So how foolish to place our trust in money. But how can we know if we're doing that? Only we can know that in our own hearts if we're putting our trust in money And the Apostle exhorts us in this chapter, particularly the rich, but I think we can recognize that comparatively to other peoples and other nations, we're all rich. And so it comes to all of us, verse 17, he says, charge them or command them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So he says, make sure you remind the rich. But that applies to the poor as well. Don't trust in riches. They're uncertain. Trust in the living God. He is certain. There are other respectable sins of idolatry. We can put our trust in the good career that we have or the the education. We went to school, we went to college, and we got that degree. We can lean on that and depend on that to give us what we need in life. Or when we're sick, we can put our trust in the medical system. We can put our trust in the hospitals, in the doctors, in modern medical technology. And we can make a subtle shift in our hearts from receiving those good gifts as gifts from God to use for our healing or not to where we put our trust in it. 
We're looking to it, hoping, hoping, hoping that the doctors will save us, that the medicine will heal us, rather than hoping that God will heal us if it is his good pleasure or take us home. When we want to know the truth, one of the great dangers nowadays is to put our trust in scientists, in historians, in other more superstitious parts of the world. People might put their trust in unclean spirits or angels or demons or the dead. But here in our modern culture, our temptation is to idolize science and technology, the great inventors, the great discoverers, and to assume that they know the truth and they can tell us the truth rather than realizing that God might give us nuggets of truth about his creation through them, but we have to be careful as well because if they're unbelieving scientists, they may be feeding us lies. But then, with regard to the greatest need that we have, which is our salvation, there's the idolatry of trusting in ourselves. Trusting in our own flesh, putting confidence in the flesh. Remember what Paul says in Philippians? That as a Pharisee, he put confidence in the flesh. I can do this. I can keep these commandments perfectly. I can earn my way by my works, by my efforts, by my decisions. I can do it. I don't need God. Or maybe I only need God a little bit. He just, if he would just help me a little bit, then I can do it. That's an idolatry of the self, of the worst kind. So God shows us that we are sinners in this regard too because we're always misplacing our trust and that happens subtly, sometimes imperceptibly. And so he pricks our consciences again through his law and he points us to Christ. He drives us to the cross and says, now look again at the cross. That's my only begotten son. Come into your flesh to suffer and die for all of your idol worship. To wash away all that misplaced trust. No, put your trust in him. Renew your mind. Renew your heart and your soul. Direct your trust to me through Jesus Christ, your Lord. That's where your hope ought to be placed. That's where your faith, that's where your trust ought to be. And if you are a child of God, regenerated with the faith of Christ in your hearts, then you say, Amen to that. Amen. That's what I want. That's what I want in my life. I want to grow in that trust. I believe, Lord. Help thou mine unbelief. Help me to grow in faith. Help me to grow in trust. So that I don't put trust in money. I don't put trust in doctors. I don't put trust in myself. In the government. In the armies and navies of our country. Or whatever it might be. But I place my trust in thee alone. That's what we want, isn't it? We want to grow in that because we know this is the secret. This is the secret that the world doesn't know. Scriptures are constantly telling us the secret, but we're constantly forgetting it. The secret is he who dwells under the shadow of the Almighty 
has peace. He has joy. He has comfort. Those who commit their way to the Lord, who rest in the Lord, who trust in the Lord with all their heart, they rise above anxiety and stress and all of these problems that we have in life. Not that we may not use or ought not to use the good gifts that God gives. We're not saying that. Doctors are a good gift. Medicines are good gifts. But we use them all the while directing our trust to the Lord. And then we find great peace and comfort. Isn't it in the way of trusting in God that we can overcome fear? One of the things that life is all about, I sometimes think, is overcoming fear. Whether it's the fear of man, the fear of suffering, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, the fear of death, the fear of hell. How do we overcome our fears? It's by hiding under the shadow of his wings, placing our trust in the Lord submitting patiently to his will for my life and knowing that whatever his will is, it's good. Finally this morning, the first commandment means we must glorify God alone and worship God alone as our God. And you might even say that this is the heart of the first commandment. Worship. As the Lord Jesus said to Satan in the wilderness when Satan tempted him, and said, I'll give you all these kingdoms of the world if you just fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. As the apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, Whether ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Isn't that the heart of the first commandment? Do everything to the glory of God. Love him, trust him, worship him. Who do you worship? Who do you glorify in your life? We all worship someone. Again, even the atheist has an object that he worships. He directs his worship to someone or something because as human beings, one of the peculiar things about us is that we are creatures of worship. We worship. Every human worships something or someone. The question is not whether you worship. The question is who do you worship or what? Some give glory to idols because they think that it's a God. And they think that it has proven itself to be a God because they think it has demonstrated power and knowledge and wisdom and achievements. So we sing praises to it. We adore it. We worship it. We go to its place of worship. Sometimes that's a stadium. That can be a place of worship. It can be a temple or shrine, it can be a church building, it can be an auditorium. There are many different kinds of places of worship. 
but we go to our place of worship to glorify whoever or whatever we think is God. So God says to us in the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You must give all the glory to me. By nature, we give glory to idols. And so in the third place, we can define idolatry as not only that I have another object instead of God that I love, or instead of God that I trust, but also instead of God, I glorify it. I praise it. I worship it. That's idolatry. Again, respectable sins. People, and even Christians sometimes, say things like, that athlete is my idol, or that singer or that actor is my idol. What a terrible thing to say, and yet, what do we mean by that? We admire that person. We, we follow that person. We, we are a fan of that person. Sometimes we can idolize politicians, worshiping them. We can idolize powerful and influential people, inventors, people who are inventing great and amazing things like artificial intelligence. If someone could invent something like that, he must be some kind of god. And there's a temptation to worship them. It's even possible to worship leaders in the church. That we look up to certain leaders, certain pastors, professors, missionaries, teachers. And we're so amazed at their accomplishments. We're so amazed at their charisma, their personality, their charm, that we adore them with a kind of worship. We follow them as if they're our God. But then, of course, the worst of all is that we worship ourselves. And that's the sin of pride. Pride is a sin against the first commandment. And pride is one of the deepest, grossest sins on the planet. And it's a sin that lurks inside all of us. That we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. That we think that we're worthy of praise. We're worthy of recognition. Because of our talents, our powers, our achievements. Look at me. Why isn't anybody looking at me? Why isn't anybody giving me the due praise that I deserve? We worship ourselves, and we think others should too. So God shows us through his first commandment our sin. He says, my children, that's not good. That's sin. Go to Jesus. Look up at the cross and see what he did. See what he had to do. See the suffering he had to endure. The intensity of it for your pride and for your idolization of creatures. And find the sweet peace of forgiveness there at the foot of the cross. And now he says, don't do that anymore. Worship the Lord thy God and him only. Give praise to him. When people praise you, deflect it back to him. When people compliment you, you give the compliments to him. 
You give the praise, the glory, and the honor to him. Always, only to him. You never accept it for yourself. You never allow it, allow it to absorb into your being. Like we sometimes say, you don't let it go to your head. But you give it back to God. We don't deserve praise. God does. Because everything that we have and everything that we do is his gifts put into action. So we understand as Christians that as long as we live in this life, we're going to struggle with all of these things. We have to keep struggling. We have to keep fighting against these things. We may not minimize our respectable sins. We must root them out. We must do war against them. We must strive to grow in obedience, in love, in trust, in worship for the Lord our God alone. And we do that with this hope set before us constantly. Soon we will arrive on the shores of eternity and all of that old flesh stripped away and we will stand before the throne of God and join our voices to all the saints and angels saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and blessing and praise and to him who sits on the throne forever and ever. Amen. Our gracious and merciful Father, we thank thee that thou dost love us so much that thou art willing to speak to us the hard words of showing us our sin, but also the gracious words of the gospel that thou hast forgiven us through the blood of Christ. And Father, may we cleave to the old rugged cross of Jesus as the whole of our salvation. And Father, grant that knowing that we might strive with an eager zeal to crush and kill the respectable sins in our lives, to put down and put away idols of all kinds and live a new and godly life 